Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Altamont, the Rolling Stones, the Hells Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day is a breathtaking cultural history filled with exclusive, never-before-revealed details. In it, celebrated rock journalist Joel Selvin tells the definitive story of the Rolling Stones' infamous Altamont concert in San Francisco, the disastrous historic event that marked the end of the idealistic 1960s. Altamont explores Rock's Darkest Day, a fiasco that began well before the climactic death of Meredith Hunter and continued beyond that infamous December night. In my recent interview with Joel Selvin, I asked him about why he decided to write this book about the Altamont Rock Festival. Well, I was exploring the idea uh, and doing a little research for a proposal, and I went down to Monterey to visit with Rock Scully, the manager of the Grateful Dead. Uh, it was a beautiful day. Rock looked great. We, we ate outside. I took pictures of him, uh, and he told me the story of how Altamont began. And I drove home from Monterey. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and I just was just glowing. I felt like I had a piece of gold in my pocket. Uh, and about two and a half months later, Rock died. He'd been sick when I saw him, and I had no idea. Uh, he, uh, like I said, he looked fantastic. Uh, and at that point, I realized that there was kind of an obligation to move forward with this, that these stories were evaporating and they needed to be written down. Give us a bit of context here, Joel. When did the Altamont concert happen in terms of other great music events in the late 1960s? Well, 1969 is often referred to as rock's greatest year. Uh, It was an amazing time in the music scene. uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were new acts. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was at the height of his uh, uh, abilities. Uh, I mean, the Who put out Tommy. It was an amazing year. Uh, and it was also the year of the Rock Festival, highlighted, of course, by Woodstock, which, you know, attracted a half million people to uh, upstate New York farm uh, in August, uh, which also was the same months that we landed on the moon and the Manson killings took place. So all this 60s madness and, 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 and wonderment was coming to some kind of climax when the Stones arrived in the United States for their first tour in three years in October. Uh, the Stones were greeted as conquering heroes. They had no idea how much the rock scene in this country had exploded in their absence. And as soon as they arrived in Hollywood, they realized that this thing was an enormous opportunity for them at a time when the band found themselves flat broke. Their manager, Alan Klein, who was also managing the Beatles at that time, just simply bottlenecked all their royalties. All their uh, uh, deals were made with his office, and all their checks went through uh, his New York bank account. He just simply stopped paying them. Keith Richards was trying to buy a house. He couldn't raise 5,000 pounds for a down payment. I don't think there's anything more pathetic than rich people without money. Well, they, they started the U.S. tour uh, simply because they could form a new company that their manager did not participate in and collect all the money directly. Uh, their record deal was tied up. Their music publishing deals were tied up. 
uh, all their royalties were blocked. So they needed to create a whole new avenue for uh, income. And uh, touring the United States, they were advised, was the best idea. And they took uh, it on like a pirate ship. I mean, I saw a file of unpaid bills. These guys never paid their hotels, their car rentals, their travel agencies. They just came here and just started marauding. How much time did the Rolling Stones actually spend planning the Altamont show, which was the last date of their 1969 U.S. tour? So Jagger announces that the Stones are going to throw a free concert in San Francisco, somewhere near San Francisco, uh, December 6th, and, uh, uh, while they're in uh, New York uh, doing the New York concerts. Uh, the night before, the permit process uh, that uh, was under, uh, going to uh, obtain Golden Gate Park in San Francisco as a concert site had failed, and, and the mayor's office had blown it out. So Jagger just says, well, we're going to go through this. We don't know where. As late as Tuesday, before the Saturday of the concert, there was no site. They found a racetrack. 60 miles north of San Francisco called Sears Point Raceway and got the people that work in there to agree to do this. The next day, the racetrack's corporate owners stepped up, Filmways, Inc. They didn't believe the Stones when they said they were doing this for charity, and they wanted a little dough for the racetrack, and they wanted a piece of the movie. Not a wholly unreasonable negotiating position, but the Stones refused to budge, and they sat there at the stalemate. The stage and sound system was being built up at Sears Point until Thursday afternoon. When the Stones lawyer got a call from Dick Carter, who owned Altamont Speedway, a nearly derelict racetrack way east of San Francisco, past the suburbs, past Serbia, past, you know, thousands of acres of cow pastures, really in the middle of nowhere. Biggest crowd he'd ever had was 6,000 for a demolition dirt. But he was going to give it to the Stones for the publicity. So they put Rock Scully in a helicopter along with Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock. I'm not sure what he was doing there. And they flew over this place. Rock looked out and he saw, oh, all these oil stains and broken glass and these piles of wrecked cars from the demolition derbies. And he was thinking, what the? And Michael Lang, here speak up. Lang says, this is perfect. We can do it here. And Rock thought, well, I mean, the guy put out Woodstock. What do I know? So uh, somewhere around... Four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, they decided to move the concert. Uh, all the gear and stuff was helicoptered over or driven by volunteers with trucks. And about four o'clock the next day on Friday, they started building the stage and sound system. They did it in the dark, and they were still plugging in cables when Santana started the next day at noon. After all these problems and all these logistical hassles, how did this concert go on as scheduled? It was so last minute. That's really horrible planning. The only thing I can think is that uh, given the economic motivation, given the surprising opportunities they found, at the very end of the tour, they pieced together a deal to shoot a movie with the uh, Maisel Brothers, uh, David and Albert, who were documentary filmmakers. Uh, they met and they shot the next to the last show on the tour at Madison Square Garden. And they didn't have a movie. They just had some concert shots. And I think that Jagger saw this Woodstock-like finale as the piece that was going to make the movie. He insisted in his deal with the Maisels that they uh, guarantee 
they could deliver the movie two weeks ahead of the um, impending Woodstock release uh, the following March. So he had his eye on this, and I, and I think this was a career opportunity, and I think they needed that finale, that epic finale for the movie. Who came up with the questionable idea of having members of the Hells Angels provide security at Altamont? So uh, you have to understand, uh, the Hells Angels uh, were uh, invited to attend the concert by Rock Scully. It was his suggestion, and, and he and Sam Cutler, the Rolling Stones tour director, went and visited uh, uh, with the Hells Angels, met with them, Sam. And, and the Angels told Sam right away, we're not cops. So they were not there to be security. They were there to perform whatever functions they felt like and whatever the, uh, they could be to help out. Uh, and uh, they were kind of official guests. Uh, but also, at the time that this meeting took place, the concert was planned for Golden Gate Park, which would have left the San Francisco chapter of the Hells Angels in jurisdiction. And the San Francisco guys were well-known to the bands. They hung out backstage. They rode bikes with the uh, together. They, they did business together. They were altogether a little bit more civilized bunch. Uh, and that would have made a huge difference. Uh, in fact, when the concert site moved, Terry the Tramp of the San Francisco chapter, who was very close friends with the dead, warned Rock Scully that this would be a jurisdiction problem. In fact, most of the difficulties in the violence at uh, Altamont were caused by uh, people down in front of the stage who belonged to the San Jose chapter, which was a brand new uh, franchise. There had been a turf war down in San Jose, and uh, the Angels had demolished a group called the Gypsy Jokers and started this new club, which was some Gypsy Jokers and some other thugs. But these were San Jose. It's like an hour south of San Francisco, quite different culturally, somewhat remote. And these guys were not used to grooving with hippies in the park like the San Francisco guys were. It was an entirely different breed. The festival and your book closes with the horrific death of Meredith Hunter during the Stone set at Altamont. But what happened throughout the day before the Stones took the stage at Altamont? Well, the violence really uh, uh, started in the open with the first set by Santana when a concert goer jumped up on the stage and ran across the stage. He was chased by three or four Hells Angels, caught up with him and beat him to a pulp right on the stage in front of the band. Santana guys were horrified. They'd never seen anything like it. This four-foot stage was crowded with like 200 people. Uh, the Santana guys just blew out of there as soon as their set was done. Next up was the airplane. Vocalist Marty Ballon tried to intercede with the Hells Angel who was beaten to some concert goer and got knocked unconscious on stage in front of the band uh, and the movie cameras. Then taken backstage, the angel that hit him, a guy named Paul Hibbets, known as Animal, young guy wearing a dead coyote as a hat for that day, very high, comes back to apologize to Marty, crying and sobbing, explains to him, you can't say that to an angel. Marty gets up and says it again. Animal beat him up a second time. So what happened then, and this has been unreported entirely until my book, and it's, 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 it's minor but crucial, is Rex Jackson, the Grateful Dead's roadie, uh, saw this. He went after Animal. Uh, it, Rex was a big, bad guy. He was the Grateful Dead's enforcer. He was well-known to everybody in the scene. And Animal cold-cocked him, uh, uh, sucker-punched him, and it took four people to carry unconscious Rex Jackson off. So he supported two black eyes the rest of the day. When Rex went down, everybody on stage knew 
the stagehands, the production team, the musicians, their last line of defense had failed, and the stage belonged to the Angels. There were no real incidents during the Flying Burrito Brothers set, but after that, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, uh, the beatings continued. Crosby pleaded with the crowd. Uh, Stephen Stills was getting stabbed in the leg by a uh, sharpened cycle spoke that one of the Angels thought was funny. Uh, they got out of there after half an hour, and for the next two hours, the audience waited for the Stones, who were backstage waiting for the sun to go down so they could look good on screen. Uh, the temperature dropped, the wind whipped through the place, there'd been no food, no water, no toilets, the crowding was unbelievable, and everybody, and I mean everybody, was intoxicated with many unpoisonous psychedelics. By the time the Stones came on, the mood was pretty grim. And during the third number, Sympathy to the Devil, Sonny Barger, the Hells Angels uh, uh, president of the Oakland chapter, saw some concertgoer jumping up and down on a bike, shorting a battery and starting a fire. He charged out to knock the kid off the bike and put out the fire. All the other angels followed him, not knowing what he was doing, and just started laying waste to the front rows. Now, the Stones could see everything. There were no spotlights. They never arrived. So they didn't get that blinding front light, and they were backlit with 50,000 watts of light. So they could see all this beatings going on. They stopped playing. Nick starts pleading with the crowd, brothers and sisters, what are we fighting for? I managed to get, get a start, uh, finish the song, start the next song, Under My Thumb. And an 18-year-old African-American was there with this very cute, pretty, white, blonde girlfriend. Uh, tries to climb up on the stage, Meredith Hunter. An angel pushes him back, and, 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 and Hunter jumps back to get in the angel's face. And that's when a bunch of the Hell's Angels attack Hunter and start beating him. He pulls out a gun to defend himself, or who knows what. Alan Pissarro, Hell's Angel standing nearby, reaches down, pulls a knife out of the scabbard on his ankle, does a pirouette, jumps on Hunter, knifes him in the neck, and four more times in the back so they fall to the ground together. More angels jump on Hunter. They separate him from Pissarro. They beat him. They stomp him. They stand on him. They finally leave him alone. A couple concert goers carry his body up to the lip of the stage. They dump it right in front of Keith Richards. Everybody on stage sees it in the book. There's a photo of Jagger looking away with his hand over his face as the Hell's Angels swarm over the body and push it back into the crowd. A young doctor grabs the body told me that his arms are for a week later and carries Hunter backstage to the medical tent where uh, he dies waiting for an ambulance. And were you actually there at Altamont? You know, I, I, I knew better. My pals my, my wanted me to go with them. I'd seen the Stones the months before in Los Angeles. I saw the, uh, the late show, uh, uh, the L.A. Forum, and yeah. Stones came on at 4 in the morning. Jagger said, welcome to the breakfast show. I hope you brought your toothbrush. Wow. Still probably one of the greatest rock shows I ever saw, but no, I've I, I, uh, been a veteran of, uh, you know, concerts in the park, and I've watched them devolve from, you know, happy, innocent frolics into drunken ordeals, and I didn't see going on some hillside outside of Tracy is like a good idea. <laughs> My pals came back the next day, by the way, they'd had a great time, they reported it was a terrific concert. Oh, he had some trouble during Sympathy for the Devil, but otherwise it was super. You could definitely be entirely unaware. George Lucas... Uh, was on the film crew that day. It was his first day on a professional film crew. He had a thousand millimeter lens that he wanted to experiment with. So the maze will send him up to the top of the hill, and he and Walter merge, another future Oscar winner, yeah. uh, spending his first day on a film crew. 
they fiddled with that thing all day. I only got one shot in the movie, and then they drove home talking about what a wonderful day it did. It must have been like Woodstock. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author Joel Salvin about his book, Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hell's Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.